This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. Hello and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. I'm Naomi Smith. In 1911, over a million people supported the first International Women's Day gathering. And today, while many countries mark the 8th of March with a public holiday, others ignore it entirely. Some consider it a day of protest and others a day of celebration. With gender inequality and economic exclusion still rampant across much of the world, we're not going to be debating whether we still need International Women's Day but more, why do we still need it? The theme of this year's IWD is hashtag choose to challenge, a call to action to stand up and challenge gender inequity. So in this special bunker, we're going to think about what we would change in the year to come. Joining me today is Minnie Rahman, Campaigns Director at the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. Hello, Minnie. Hey, Naomi. And also with me is regular Nina Schick, writer, broadcaster, author of a rather fantastic book about the threat of deep fakes. Hi, Nina. Long time no speak. We've not been on a show together for ages. Hi, Naomi. So so nice to be back with you. And we're also joined by fellow Irish woman Jude Kelly, CBE, former artistic director of the South Bank Centre, award-winning theatre and opera director, who has received not one, but two Olivier's and a Basker Gold Badge Award. She stepped back from the boards to follow the WOW, or Women of the World Foundation, in 2010, which runs an annual festival programme celebrating women and girls. Welcome, Jude. Hi, nice to be here. Minnie, let's start with you. Why on earth do we still need International Women's Day? Um, Okay, I will just state the obvious just so it's on the record. You know, there are still very clear and real systemic injustices carried out against women from sort of sexual violence, gender pay gap, inequalities in education and healthcare and representation. So, you know, while something like International Women's Day can get a bit bit of stick for being a catch-all for some complex problems, you know, setting a day aside, just one day to focus on the experiences of all kinds of women, um, to either empower them or to highlight where change needs to occur is, is really important. And what I think is really interesting about International Women's Day is that it's quite accessible to a lot of different people because the events that are themed by the day are multifaceted. So you can have sort of 
International Women's Day targeted sex education or large political mobilizations or events to celebrate successful women. My only caveat to all of that is, is what I think is, is really important is, you know, women exist for the rest of the year as well. And I would really encourage people taking part in International Women's Day uh, to think about how they can work beyond the day itself and make sure they're looking at the structural causes of injustice and how to rectify them. Absolutely fascinating point and, uh, and, and one that we're probably going to delve into a bit more. Jude, gender inequality is obviously a huge problem the world over and we're far from immune here in the UK. And, and so building on Minnie's point, to what extent does having a dedicated day to shine a spotlight on issues help? Well, it's better than not having one. And I think that there were some really big issues uh, throughout history, that women had to create solidarity around to solve, like getting the vote, like getting birth control, like raising issues, domestic violence being the most obvious epidemic that we're actually all experiencing all the time. And I think that it does allow some collective action to be there on that one day. In the 11 years since I founded WOW, I founded it actually specifically to celebrate the 100th anniversary of International Women's Day in the Ah. UK. I didn't know that it was going to become, (laughs) 11 years later, a global (laughs) movement. It wasn't what I kind of intended, but I'm I'm, I'm not sorry. But it was because I was really nervous that we were beginning to take that moment of internationalism for granted, that we were sort of thinking that the West didn't need it so much, that the global North had kind of solved its problems. And, um, And I thought that was tremendously... A bad complacency, not to say arrogance, and left so many girls and women isolated and lonely dealing with problems that they thought were their own problems, whereas actually, as we know, it's not their problem. It's the problem that a whole system that is adopted by all theologies and all philosophies that are mainstreamed basically has, which is says, you know, women aren't equal. It, it's, it's, it's deeply embedded into all our systems and all our belief systems. And so at least on one day, bit by bit, we're trying to say, look, go beyond the problem that we're trying to solve and look deeper into why that problem exists. And and that's the big, huge issue uh, for us all to think about. Nina, one of those issues surely has got to be uh, around your particular area of interest and expertise at the moment, these um, deep fakes. Is there a particularly gendered element to them are are women celebrity women for instance just more prone to becoming victims of them well I think first thing I'd say is like I'm from South Asia and that's probably some one of the worst places in the world to be a woman you know even down to the very basics like if you are menstruating you have to leave the house to go and live in the cattle shed but to me the really interesting thing to answer your question in the context of deep fakes is that here as so often when it comes to emerging civil liberties issues women are on the front line so deep fake porn is undeniably a gendered phenomenon AI is now sophisticated enough to learn, quote unquote, to hijack people's biometrics and then recreate them in fake media, right? Fake videos, fake images of people saying and doing things that they never did. And the first application of this stunning, really technological breakthrough, which has only been around for 
really about five years. Surprise, surprise was to create non-consensual pornography of women. And it started with celebrities when it first came out at the end of 2017 and read it. But very quickly, it has become apparent that this phenomenon, though undeniably gendered, is not just targeted against celebrities. In fact, the majority of the deepfake porn that exists out there right now is targeted against normal women and not only normal women, minors as well. Because as the AI gets better, less and less training data is needed. All you need is a single video, a single audio clip, a single image, which can easily be found on social media, you know, kind of bots control it and find that stuff. So we're finding this very new, real, violent threat against women participating in porn that they actually never even participated in. But in terms of how this is this emerging civil liberties threat, this is something that starts with women and might appear to be a tawdry women's issue. But of course it is not, because undeniably we've already started to see this uh, leaching out into political disinformation, into fraud, social engineering. So again, I think the key point for me with deep fakes and uh, women on International Women's Day is that a lot of women's issues are, again, as I, as I mentioned, on um, you know the cutting edge of really important emerging civil liberties issues that extend far beyond women. Indeed, the, pa- the patriarchy hurts everyone. Jude, I don't want to oversimplify what's clearly this sort of many-headed beast, and, and you and Minnie have both touched on the, the, you know, the systemic root causes of inequity. But if we all had to focus on just one specific area of change for women this year, what would you pick? Hmm. I'm going to pick two immediately by being a subversive. I hope that's okay. All right, so I'd pick two. I'd pick a rape-free world, which when you say it sounds impossible because we are taught that it's one of those things, sexual harassment, sexual violence, et cetera. But I'd choose to start considering, like, you know, we don't believe that murder is okay. Uh, we haven't eradicated it, but we've we've changed so much around the idea of murder. And I, I would say that... The, that is one of the key things that the public as a whole should decide that a rape-free world is where they want to get to. And that's not just sort of a, a social and domestic, that's as a weapon of war and so on. And then at the other end of the scale, if that's a way of putting it, I would concentrate on a complete revolution around childcare and accepting the fact that not all women have children or want children or can have children. But nevertheless, I think that children being a part of the society which is foisted on women regardless of whether they have the you know ability to deal with that um is is something which we haven't taken responsibility for we haven't looked at it properly uh, for a long time and i think it's absolutely critical that we do because i don't think that women can play the right role in the house never mind outside the house if they still have primary responsibility with or without their consent to do that. Minnie, how about you? What 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 should we be prioritising in your view? Yeah, I, I'm kind of a person who likes to think about um, 
big vision you know what does our future look like so you know even though there are a ton of kind of individual policies that we could concentrate on in the next year what I'm really interested in is the empowerment of women who are traditionally excluded from from mainstream narratives so to me that means a lot of more difficult conversations but I'd really like women as a collective to think about how we can engage constructively in conversations about things like sex work and the rights of trans women, because these are ultimately conversations that are interlinked and connected with broader women's rights. And and they're incredibly volatile and toxic at the moment, when actually they're issues where we really do have more in common than we are led to believe. Um, So I would like us to focus on on the uniting factors there. Um, And as those conversations become more public, and as we act more in solidarity, I'd really like to hear more from the women affected, because often these conversations happen without them. Nina, the the World Economic Forum's 2020 Global Gender Gap report shows that just a quarter of data and AI professionals are women. Now, we know, you know, you've told us very, very clearly that women are disproportionately affected by some of the outputs from the tech world, but they're incredibly underrepresented in in that, in the input. What what can we do to fix the STEM gender gap? Yeah, I mean, I I guess it's first worth remarking just how important STEM is, right? It is the engine of the economy. It's where innovation occurs. It's also where we can really make a difference when it comes to solving the big problems in the world, like climate change. Um, The second thing about these stats is it doesn't tell the whole picture, because in some STEM disciplines, like life sciences and biology, women are represented at almost the 45% mark. But when it comes to engineering and computer science, the gender gap is still very real. There you're just looking at 12 to 20% female representation. And I think ultimately, when you talk about addressing this in education, you have to look at the gender attainment gap which is, again, very real when it comes to STEM and certain disciplines like engineering and computer science, where we find that women lag behind men in attainment in physical science, engineering, computer science at all educational levels, starting from high school, going to bachelor's, master's and PhD. So the first suggestion, I think, to help more females to study STEM is to introduce a mentorship program that starts at high school at the age of 13 or 14. And then you maintain that mentor all the way through to college. A second suggestion would be the idea of STEM interaction days for um, young female students who are potentially interested in pursuing a career in STEM that are sponsored by universities. So I think that addressing the attainment gap through measures like this is is really where you start beginning in education, particularly when it comes to some of the more quote-unquote hard sciences. And to what extent could that attainment be linked to the cultures set by the employers that those, uh, you know, students go on to apply for? You know, how much is the, you know, the the tech bro culture so off-putting that it can also have an impact on on whether you really want to attain in that field because actually the, the career choice looks unattractive? Yeah, I mean, when you're talking about once you're in the industry, I think the kind of tech bro culture is definitely off-putting to many women. Although it has to be said that some of the biggest tech companies in the world, like Facebook or Amazon, Twitter, Google, uh, 
although they are kind of monoliths and they have the resources to do this, have been very progressive in terms of making their workplace very flexible and very inviting to women, right? And I'm going to just echo what Jude said, because this is something that, you know, I'm going through myself. I think a key, key, key component of this has to be childcare and flexible childcare. How do you integrate this right into company culture and company life? So for me, although I find the tech bro culture very toxic, it's also interesting to see that at some big tech companies, the kind of progressive policies towards childcare and even programs like funding IVF or surrogacy are something I think that other other companies outside of um, the tech industry could really could really learn from. Now, Jude, given that men dominate these sorts of professions, and you know most professions, let's face it, we do clearly need them on side to achieve equity. And you're pretty optimistic, as I understand it, about fathers in particular and switching on to feminism. How important are personal and family discussions for changing minds? Well, look, I think that one of the big examples we could give are gay gay rights. I mean, when people realised that within their midst of their own loved ones, they were going to find LGBTQ plus people and they suddenly thought, well, you know, am I going to decide to exclude, which was traditionally, you know, forced, that was kind of the forced culture, or am I just going to embrace? Things changed really, really quickly. So... I think that, I mean, I I feel both optimistic and cynical at the same time sometimes. I mean, it irritates me when a man says, oh, well, I'm really interested in feminism because of my daughter. Because you want to say, well, what about your wife or your sister or your mother, you know, or your best friends? Didn't didn't you care before? So there is some element of, you know, because this is mine, I want this child to succeed. Mm. Um, But nevertheless, you know, if, if that's the way in to changing hearts and minds, then I think it's a good conversation to have. And I did a whole project on fathers and daughters, and it was absolutely evident that daughters whose fathers had stood up for them, championed them, believed in them, actually have so much more confidence and self-belief than those who didn't, which is obvious, isn't it? Because, you know, if you like, if, the, if your dad's the, the emblem of the patriarchy and your dad says you're great, then, you know, you're going to go forth and feel, okay, I can do this. I'm great, but, yeah. You know, I, I think that it's it's really critical that fathers take a different role of the idea of being a parent and that they realise that each child's potential is going to be in direct relationship to how much belief they get given to them. Um, and that, so I think, per, I think fathers are changing their attitude to daughters, but it depends where you live, what your own circumstances have been, your own family history. So it's not a quick process. And sometimes people say, oh, well, it's all different now, isn't it? And it isn't. I mean, it largely isn't different, but no. I think that the conversations are more open. And, and, a, and, a, and a kind of a key thing that has happened in the last 10 years, I think, or maybe even even the last five years, in terms of a growth spurt for feminism, I think, is grabbing the idea of shame and saying, we're not having this any longer. We're not going to be ashamed about menopause. We're not going to be ashamed about, you know, rape. We're going to come out and talk about these things as being something which is which is part of the world that we live in, both biologically and socially. And this is making a big difference because it's it's meaning that the language that men are hearing all around them and then learning to adopt is one of acceptance of things, of one of confronting things, of one of, of, of you know, pre- pre- preventing things being denied. So 
yeah, it's better for men, of course, in the end. They, they, you know, like they will all feel happier. If you say to them, would you like to go back 100 years to how you would have lived then as a man with your, you know, your female loved ones? I'm sure they'd all say no, unless they're, you know, completely balmy and some are still are. But um, mainly people like progress once they've got it. So I think getting a bit like the apartheid movement, I mean, in the end, you know, you had to decide as a white person, were you going to stomach for your own integrity living in that society or not? And that's why Black Lives Matter is so critical as well, because, you know, it's this is about what what society you are prepared to live in and be complicit in and upholding you know, racism and upholding sexism. It's just has got to be something which becomes anathema to a man. Minnie, I uh, recently came across this incredibly amazing photograph, uh, thanks to my lovely friend Roshni, um, of Indian suffragettes during the women's coronation procession in 1911. Now, your organisation does incredible work for immigrants and everyone should be following JCWI. And we, we know all too well the contribution that they make, often as medics, teachers, entrepreneurs, carers, etc. But we don't often hear about the contributions immigrant mi- women make to political life. Now, of course, they're, they're particularly underrepresented in positions of elected office, but that doesn't mean that they're not politically active. Why don't we see enough of it? Where, where do we need to look to see that action happening? Yeah, like you, I, I really love to see those accurate historical representations of political movements. You know, they're so empowering, especially for women of colour, where often we don't expect to see ourselves represented, even when we have actually been there. Um, and, you know, women of colour and migrant women are often still at the forefront of a lot of political movements. Um, you know, it was a black woman who was at the front forefront of Me Too and um Black women have been amazing through the Black Lives um, Matter movement. Um, so I think it's really important that that women of colour are accurately represented in, in kind of those kind of political movements. But you're right, m- migrant women have a really terrible time. And as I said earlier, there are quite complex reasons and differences between women which which add to this. You know, a lot of migrant women are also women of colour, which means they're subject to anti-migrant narratives, racial discrimination, gender inequality, and any other combination of oppressive forces. And we're still at a point where people don't want to celebrate migrants as individuals and we've got a system like the home office which perpetuates that by being particularly discriminatory in its policies towards women it treats people as a collective denies people agency and and doesn't think about their well-being and all of that drives migrant women out of the limelight whether that's in their own daily work or whether it's in kind of political movements or activism and the kind of stereotypes are really pervasive that you know migrant women are are uneducated they don't speak the language or you know those kind of that kind of rhetoric really pushes people um, away from from celebrating their contributions. So my hope is that the pandemic will have will have an impact on the way the public views migrants and particularly migrant women who have been in really vital roles. You know, we've really relied on um, migrant women from domestic cleaners to carers to to shop owners to doctors. We would not have got through this pandemic without them. And my hope is that people will recognise that now and the government will recognise that in some way, um, even if they didn't before. 
Nina, thinking about what the average person can actually do on International Women's Day, you know, apart from retweeting Richard Herring, if he's even still doing that again this year, um, there's going to be a lot of suggestions from celebrities, influencers, etc. So I'm thinking particularly about the, like the guilty reaction of a lot of influencers to the BLM protests last year. And and whether or not those kind of celebrity reminders encourage longer term behavioral change, or are they just really good at, at getting people to focus on the day and, and share content and things like that? I don't actually think that they encourage long term behavioral change. And perhaps I'm a little bit too cynical. But when something similar happened around BLM and, you know, everyone kind of put the blackouts where on Instagram and not only celebrities, but even uh, multinational global corporations kind of showed their support for Black Lives Matter. I think whilst on one hand, it's a very powerful symbol. So I will say that is good to show that, you know, you support the movement. On the other hand, it can actually cheapen the action of taking real meaningful change because a lot of these kind of symbols or kind of public adherences uh, are showing that you're kind of dedicated to the cause is just literally posting a square on Instagram, right? So if you want to talk about racism or if you want to talk about um, inequality when it comes to, to women or minorities, just posting a square on Instagram or posting a list of things that you could do to empower women, but not really doing anything else beyond that, I think is quite hypocritical and self-serving. So I, for me, I am a bit cynical about how this has become a very politicized gesture in the sense that you want to show your peers that you care about it and the way that you show that you care about it is by posting something on social media but then the action kind of stops there so i mean one thing that they could do instead of just posting on social media is actually try and do something that would make a change so again when i talk about blm a lot of the companies that were talking about their support for blm you know the, they had sweatshops <laughs> in uh, the third world. Uh, why not talk about actually changing their supply chain or actually paying some of the workers um, much more fair rates or empowering women through microloans um, through certain NGOs that have proven to be very effective when it comes to international aid and development. So I think Real action, instead of just posting things on social media, is always where my preference is going to be. I think there is a certain amount of value to show that you support the cause, but it has to be much deeper than that. Jude, IWD also seeks to celebrate and voice you know, the social, economic, cultural, political achievements of women. Are there any particular historical achievements coincidentally by women that you think listeners should know about that perhaps just isn't on their radar? Yeah, I mean, like nearly everything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, for example, you know, it's not known that in the restoration period, most of the theatres in London were actually run by women. Mm. Uh, They were called the female wits. They ran theatres and they wrote plays and they were considered to be, you know, proper theatre owners and proper theatre makers. And the fact that when I got to university to study drama, 
like nobody told me that they even existed. And I was made to feel that, you know, there were only three women directors who'd ever existed almost. That's a, a real failure. But I mean, we are increasingly trying to celebrate that, aren't we? So yes, that it is my profession. There have been fantastic, uh, not just performers, but like Lillian Bayliss, who started the Old Vic and Sadler's Wells, uh, Annie Horneman, who founded the Abbey Theatre. You know, they, these are all Nelly Ninette de Valois, who started the Royal Ballet, Marie Romba, who started the the the, the, the Romba Company. You'd be amazed how many of the foundations of culture in all countries were actually founded by women, because women have tended to go, our society needs more things that bring us together or tells more stories. Or uh, so Women are fantastic at creating social advancement. The parks movement, so much about that has been about women. The education movement generally has been fueled by women. And so I, I think that very often... What I think is that women also not only haven't told their own history because they've been very busy, but then, you know, men have assumed it can't have been done by women. It must have been done by men because they just think that that's the norm. And my current beef is that Wikipedia... Has oh, any- don't start me. Don't start me. <laughs> All right. There's so few entries of women in any category because the... The, the threshold the- for, for um, celebrity is too high, I think, on, on Wikipedia. And, you know, I know so many women, myself included, um, who, whose pages have just been, you know, taken Take down. Yes, but it's not just that. I mean, the woman who was the, pro- the, the scientist who eventually won the Nobel Prize, she got on after she'd won the Nobel Prize, but she wasn't able to get on before that, even though she had a most astonishing career. So I think that that we've still got the issue of the the, the winner writes the history, and the winner is still male. Now, you ran the Southbank Centre, you know, obviously this incredibly iconic tourist attraction in London, you know, largest art centre, and you had an all-women leadership team. And by contrast, the current cabinet um, uh, has just six women out of uh, Johnson's 26-person team. And we're told that, you know, that that creates this, um, quote, blokey mentality, uh, as you can probably quite well imagine around the table. You've run an all-women leadership team. What is the impact of having gender-saturated leadership teams? I mean, did you miss having a male voice around that decision-making table? No, well, I did have, I, it wasn't a female team, actually. Oh, I'm it, sorry. It, it did have men in. Good. And, uh, and and actually, it is interesting because I think if we think that women's leadership is is of, of a particularly consensual kind, which is what we 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 often say, I mean that's not always the case. But then you know, obviously, I think w- women teams can be really good working together because they aren't competitive with each other by and large, and they do try to support each other. And that's been my experience, and that. I do notice that because, you know, the way that boys are brought up, often they feel that they need to be competitive, even if that's not particularly to their nature. But so so I I think that a mixed team support each other very well to moderate different kinds of leadership styles. And and so I, I, I like mixed teams, but I think also all women teams can be really powerful and good. I think all male teams are really tough. I mean, and and quite toxic and quite to each other. I mean, never mind mm. to their female employees. So I, I think you've got to experiment with leadership style. And I think that men 
can become much more consensual leaders and they're better for it. So I think that women having had to listen for so many hundreds of years and having had to think carefully about how to get the right conditions for getting agreement, because it wasn't automatic, they couldn't just order people to agree with them. I think it's produced fantastic negotiating skills in women. I mean, not cynical ones, good ones. And Mm. I think men can learn from that. Now that we don't have a command and control policy in most countries, men need to find different leadership skills and they'll find them by watching women. Absolutely. And uh, the only thing I would probably disagree with you on would be that all women teams aren't necessarily toxic because from my own experience of having been at a single sex school for too long compared to when I've also been at a co-education place, trust me, there is nothing more toxic than teenage girls who have no boys to moderate their behavior. towards. I'll give you that one too. Yeah. Nina, in a recent Bunker Daily, another Jude, um, who knew there were so many of them, Jude Rogers, uh, spoke to the authors behind the At On This Day She um, account, which is a social movement and book that seeks to put women back into history. And one thing they noted was that we tend to focus on women's achievements rather than, you know, that they're quite naturally imperfect lives and their behaviours more holistically is there a danger that the International Women's Day reinforces the behaviour of celebrating women only for their achievements uh, on on just one day? And, you know, if, if so, should we have some kind of like, you know, fuck ups by Women Day? Because we're human and, and you know, we're, we're not always perfect. I mean, obviously, we're much more perfect than men, but we're not always perfect. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right. You know, you've um, achieved true gender equality when you can talk about um the incompetent women who are uh, running the top show, right? <laughs> um, but no, yeah, I, I, I do think that because if ultimately you do want to achieve a society where men and women are really perceived of as equally, um, you have to be able to assess history in this more holistic way. I mean, I'm a historian myself by training. And not only is history constantly being reassessed, but when you look at individuals in history, including very influential, powerful individuals who, you know, basically cause, cause the course of humanity to change, you'll often find that they're quite complex and nuanced and there are a lot of gray areas. So understanding people's contributions and people's achievements whilst also understanding the complexity of their lives and their personalities is always something that I, I, I would welcome. Now, um, Minnie, so talking about men maybe broadening their horizons, um, this week, <laughs> Ben Bradley MP, of all people, was appointed to Caroline Noakes' Women and Equalities Select Committee. And this is a man, uh, listeners may or may not know, who asked why there isn't a minister for men. So my question to you is, what hope is there for improved gender equality under this government when politicians like him get sweeties for their bad behaviour? I mean, that appointment is just a joke. It's a horrendous joke. And it doesn't give me any hope for improved uh, gender equality under this government, although there is a kind of different selection process for who goes on to those committees. Um, but it, it really doesn't fill me with hope that we have people like that in 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 a conservative 
party, let alone in the Conservative government. Um, and it, I don't think there's any political will there from the top. And what bothers me the most about um, this government is that it's particularly tokenistic. And this echoes conversations that were happening around the time of the last reshuffle, when it was touted as the most diverse cabinet ever. You know, there's no good having someone like Priti Patel in government for the purposes of improving equality. It doesn't do anything but improve the kind of the status of the cabinet as the most diverse. And, you know, if I even if I was being generous and said, oh, it might inspire a young brown woman somewhere to engage in politics, unless the political will matches, it can actually and will actually make equality much worse in society because of the policies that uh, she is prioritising or that the government is prioritising and, and implemented. You know, the balance is tipped negatively. And I think it's really malevolent to, to kind of market a government in that way. Mm-hmm. I, I remember conservative uh, friends of my parents saying to me, oh, aren't you lucky Margaret Thatcher's made it uh, so much easier for you as a, a woman interested in politics to have a career in politics? And I you know, sort of slack-jawed <laughs> responding <laughs> to them, like, but she didn't promote any other women while she was there, and the political wheel certainly wasn't. Before we go, Jude, previous uh, WOW festivals have featured uh, a, a slightly poorly Malala Yousafzai, you've had Salma Hayek. WOW UK 2021 has gone virtual, obviously because of COVID, it's it's from the 1st to the 21st of March, uh, and you've got talks from people like Aaron Dati Roy, Professor Kimberly Williams Crenshaw on intersectionality, which we have touched on and not gone into anywhere enough detail on this show. Who are you most excited about hearing from? Well, uh, you know, we, apart from all of the big conversations, we also have like small, if you like, conversations. And we've got one, which is a workshop on plumbing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just say that because the, kind of the, the, the key thing about WOW is to say that you've also got to just enjoy all aspects of being woman and, and also fess up to stuff that you kind of go, can I get a man to sort this out for me? Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, we've got, we've got our own conditioning around these things, haven't yeah. we? And, you know, there's no reason why we can't, like, unblock pipes and sort out toilets, and we should be doing it. So we've got a plumbing workshop that I I, I would like people to all attend uh, so that you don't have that embarrassing thing of saying, I'm completely believing in being equal, but I'm not prepared to work out how to undrew the drains. That's such a good idea. (laughs) Especially as someone that's had to spend far too much money on a plumber lately. Yes, (laughs) just roll up your own sleeves, Naomi. Um, Where can listeners find out more? Go onto the WOW website. Uh, and uh, you know you'll be all all the things that are there. You can book them. There's loads of things that are free, um, and all the talks are free. Uh, there's some things that you can pay for, and of course, if you want to donate, we are a charity. We'd be thrilled. But you know there is, it, it, and anything you book for, you can then watch for the next month. So you've got plenty of time to catch up with everything. And for example, Aaron Ditty Roy and V, who were on last night. Um, You've still got, or night before last, actually, you've still got a chance to, to, to go on and get the ticket and carry on. Great. Fantastic. Well, that's it for today. But my enormous thanks to our three wonderful women on the show today. Thank you, Minnie. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Nina. Thank you so much for having me. And a special thanks to our guest, Jude. Thanks very much. Loved it. 
Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Friday with Start Your Week on Mondays and the main panel show on Tuesdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any of our new episodes. You can also back the Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. See you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Naomi Smith with Minnie Rahman and Nina Schick. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers, Jacob Archbold and Jan Losofranievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.